Hello and welcome to episode number 10 of Performer on Record, the official podcast of Performer Magazine. I am your host, as always. Uh, my name is Ben and I am the editor of Performer Magazine. So if you are an artist, label, publicist, manager, or other industry professional that I haven't listed, uh, feel free to send me your stuff uh, for possible consideration in the mag. Uh, my email is pretty easy to remember, just ben at performermag.com. Uh, you can also hit up our website for more contact information, but uh, if you've got the digital release, vinyl, tape, CD, whatever, uh, send it our way. We listen to everything, we give everything a fair shot, and we'd love to hear from you. That said, if you haven't heard any of our previous episodes, uh, please head back through the archive. Obviously, everything's free on whatever podcast uh, service you prefer, Spotify, uh, Amazon, Google Play, Apple, uh, I've probably forgotten more podcast services than I can remember, but we're on all of them. Uh, up on today's docket is an interview we did a while back with Early James. Um, Early's a really cool artist that we worked with first on a project with Elixir Strings. Um, he was our Elixir Strings Artist of the Month. We did some really cool uh, videos with him, uh, kind of acoustic stripped down songs of his uh, with some fresh strings. So I would also recommend uh, head to our YouTube channel. Um, check out those videos along with all the other videos that we do throughout the year. We test out a bunch of gear with real world artists. Uh, we do a bunch of other stuff with Elixir Strings as well. We're currently wrapping up uh, a virtual tour uh, across America with a number of different varied artists um, all performing kind of stripped down intimate sets of their own uh, using the strings. So Head to the YouTube channel, uh, check out some of those performances. Really cool stuff from artists like Foxanne. Uh, we're doing one with Decibel Studios out in East LA, um, run by a really cool guy named Jesus. Um, and he's going to have um, a band coming up in the next two weeks. So keep an eye on the YouTube channel. Uh, we've also done uh, a lot of great stuff with pe previous uh, podcast um, interview subjects like Katie Pruitt, uh, AJ Smith, who's actually uh, self promotion here. He's actually on the cover this month. So if you haven't checked out the new issue, uh, AJ is the uh, featured interview right in the centerfold there. So give that a read. Uh, it's also available online at performermag.com as well as our digital interactive issue reader uh, on the issue platform. And that's I-S-S-U-U. -S so you can get the app, download it to your tablet or phone, or just use the desktop version on issue.com. And that should do it for all the uh, housekeeping type stuff. Um, as you know, at the beginning of each episode, I, I tend to kind of give you an update on where I'm at, what I'm up to at the moment. And currently, I'm just kind of uh, going through some maintenance stuff uh, on my turntable, getting that back up in, uh, in tip-top shape. There was nothing really wrong with it. Um, just swapped out uh, a spring on the anti-skate mechanism and uh, been playing around with a couple of different... Uh, cartridge combinations. I had an Audio-Technica 440 MLB, which was the update to the 440 MLA on there for about four years or so. And it's definitely starting to to wear. And in fact, it's not just starting to wear. I've taken it off completely and, and dumped it. I, I looked at it under a microscope and it's uh, completely, it, it's worn. So uh, that went, but what was cool is uh, I realized that they had updated a bunch of the cartridges a couple years back after I'd got the 440, and the new uh, stylus assemblies actually fit the old cartridge body, which is uh, great, and it, they've been doing that for a long time. So I got the 
540 ml stylus whatever the model number is for the stylus that goes on the vm 540 ml cartridge um because that's a direct fit and it's still got the micro line stylus which i like um if you haven't tried a more advanced stylus shape like if you're still running a conical spherical stylus on your turntable and you have the option um to to update like so you've got a half inch mount or something um I would recommend if you've got the budget to try to do it, go micro line, uh, go Shibata, go, go fine line contact, whatever manufacturer's lingo is for it. You're, you're going to be really, really happy. You did, especially on the last, I would say th third to, to quarter of, of the album side, because these stylus shapes really kind of just cut through all the inner groove distortion and, and any um, sibilance issues that you might have. Now, there are some records that were pressed with sibilance that they're going to be better on, but not completely eliminate. Uh, the back half of a lot of Billy Joel albums are sibilant, uh, especially some of the more, uh, not more recent, I guess the 80s isn't recent, but some of the early digital stuff that he did, like Innocent Man, uh, very notorious for, for sibilance, but you can cut that down a little bit. Um, Paul Simon, I think, is very notorious for having a lot of sibilance. Peter Gabriel, guys like that, and uh, female singers too on kind of the the back half of uh, of an album side, like say the last track or two. So, a long-winded way of saying if you have an opportunity to use a more advanced uh, style shape and you've got the budget to do it, uh, I did it about 10, 15 years ago, and I've never looked back. Uh, I know Shore introduced a bunch of uh, micro ridge stuff probably 40 years ago. Um, it should be the standard. I know it's more expensive to produce, but you know, it, it really bumps me out when people get into records and they put a really crummy stylus on their turntable and they don't align it properly. And it, and it sounds bad, you know, it sounds distorted and, uh, screechy and, and sibilant. And I, I wish everybody had an opportunity to use really great stuff, but, um, them's the breaks, I suppose. Um, I also dug out of storage an old Nagaoka, uh, MP110, which is the update to the old MP10. Um, or MP11 rather. Um, it's an elliptical stylus, but it, it tracks pretty well. Um, any records that I've had that are dirty that I've um, cleaned up and still had skipping problems on, I've thrown the MP110 on it and it seems to plow through them pretty well. Um, I know it's got different mass and loading and all that stuff that audiophiles uh, complain about on forums. I, I don't really care as long as it plays well and, and sounds good. And for an elliptical, it does. So anyway, uh, that's my long-winded way of saying I've got a new microline stylus and uh, backup elliptical uh, for kind of older, worn records. I am very interested in this ultrasonic cleaner that's uh, on Kickstarter, or I think just completed its Kickstarter run, from a Hong Kong company called Humming Guru. Um, it's like three or four hundred bucks. Um, I have not tested the waters myself with ultrasonic cleaners. I've had my records some of them cleaned on ultrasonic machines and the results are frankly stunning. Uh, I think much better than I have ever anticipated, especially with really old, dirty records that were really tough to clean manually, still had a lot of pops and crackles and, and um, you know, stuff that is so far out of print that it's never going to come back, like old jazz records that just don't appeal to anybody, but, but me maybe anymore. Um, stuff that you're just not going to find uh, digitally or streaming. So I want to keep them in the best shape possible. So ultrasonic is definitely, uh, it's an eye opener if you haven't had a chance to have your records clean. So finally, there's kind of this affordable option uh, coming out, or at least promised to come out. I've seen the updates on Kickstarter. So I'm interested in getting my hands on that later this fall, just to 
get my collection nice and fresh and squeaky clean or as clean as I can get it to minimize surface noise and, and cracks and popples, pops, popples. I don't know what popples are. Anyway, that's my long-winded rant. Uh, so updating the turntable, getting that in good playing shape. Next is I got to tackle my cassette deck. I have an Akamichi CR1A which uh, some of the transport buttons are sticking a little bit. So I wonder what that's about because it's not a belt issue because the belt is fairly new. So I'm not sure what the stickiness is there, but I'll have to open that up. And that'll be the next project I'm sure I'll uh, tell you about on episode uh, 11. Anyway, we've got uh, an interview coming up in a moment here with Early James. But before we do that, let's hear a word from our sponsors. Before we jump into that interview, I do want to thank our premier sponsor, Elixir Strings, for sponsoring this podcast and each and every episode of Performer on Record. Uh, Elixir is uh, the only string that we use here at Performer because their protective coating keeps our guitar and bass strings full of life better than any other brand we'd have ever tried. And when we're reviewing stomp boxes and guitars and amps and recording gear for each uh, of our issues, we don't want anything distracting us from that job, uh, especially the hassle and expense of constantly changing out our gross, corroded strings. And believe me, I don't know what's going on with the pH in my fingers, but uh, normal, uncoated strings just don't last here in the office. Uh, and we don't want anything getting in the way of you making your music either. So say goodbye to the gross corrosion and dirt and sweat and oil buildup and use Elixir strings. Trust us, their proprietary featherweight coating acts as a really great barrier against tone-killing buildup on your guitar strings, allowing you to get lost in your music. So without any further ado, let's go ahead and hear our interview uh, that we pre-taped with Early James, and we'll come back at the end to close things out, and I uh, hope you enjoy. So yeah, so thanks for hopping on with us here. What I would like to do is um, first try to cover your background as a musician, um, and then really get into kind of the nuts and bolts of your creative process. I'd love to learn more about your songwriting, your guitar playing, how you approach recording music and performing live and all that sort of stuff, if that's cool. Yeah. Sure. Excellent. So let's take it back to the beginning. I know you are originally from Alabama. Is that correct? Yeah. Cool. So, what were maybe some of your first musical experiences? Um, I think uh, like early on, uh, I was my mom was uh, a huge fan of the Eagles, so uh, she would always have that like. Hell freezes over DVD on when she was like cleaning the house, and I remember. I think that's the first song that I like knew the lyrics to was "Take It Easy." I would uh, I would like sing that to people in the grocery store. She claims, <laughs> um, and not really get the lyrics right. <laughs> like, well, I'm headed down the road. Like, I would just make up my own lyrics and just keep that first verse going forever. But, I'm going to uh, let you in on a little secret. I think when the Eagles were performing in their heyday, they probably made up a lot of the lyrics on stage, too. Yeah. So. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I think uh, that was, like, the first, like, guitar-heavy music uh, that I was hearing. And um, I guess uh, my... Um, 
I always say like you. I, I think you live a long, a pretty good while before you realize what good music is. You just kind of accept what what you hear on the radio is just like oh that's music, yeah. and then you finally like I guess the first artist I heard that I was like oh this is this is the stuff that is aimed at me. It was like Hank Williams Senior. Oh, okay. Um. And um. I mean, my dad and, and grandparents, uh, my uncle JW, they all listen to like the Johnny Cash and Waylon and Merle and all the uh, all the old country Will and Elton. And... Okay, so more like the outlaw country scene. Yeah. Cool. So, were you picking up a guitar around this point, or were you mostly just kind of figuring out what you liked? Um. Yeah. I mean. I I think I I asked for a guitar when I was 14 and finally got one when I was 15. Um, but yeah, like right when I started listening to stuff like James Taylor um, and Jimi Hendrix and I mean even, you know, like my sister was a huge John Mayer fan and I kind of thought he was pop music until I heard him play guitar so I latched on to him which when I was young cool. first started playing and that kind of I was like oh this guy when he plays guitar sounds like Jimi Hendrix and then uh, well, especially or, in his, in his it, trio stuff his trio yeah, work is really good it probably worked backwards I was like man uh, Jimi Hendrix sounds like John Mayer <laughs> like, and then uh, finally did the did the research yeah, man you're making me feel it. old <laughs> <laughs> well man John Mayer's old that, the first album came out in like 2000 oh like, don't say that don't say if John Mayer's <laughs> old that makes me old 2001 I believe yeah so that's not old <laughs> <laughs> alright I'll give it if you're born in the 90s that's probably old yeah um, alright so cool so you're getting into more more kind of eclectic type of of influences I'm assuming at some point, you know, you're, you're playing guitar and listening to all this stuff. You have that moment that a lot of musicians do where you kind of think, okay, well, I'm going to write now. I'm going to write my own stuff. Does that, does that sort of happen around the same time or does that take a little bit? Yeah. I mean, I remember like the first song I ever wrote, uh, like after I learned how to do like, bump, 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 like an E. <laughs> yeah. The e shuffle. And like that little, that little descending lick, like da 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 da, like the, the classic turnaround. Yep. I like, um, I wrote a song about one of my teammates in football about him making a sandwich. And it was just like a traditional, <laughs> just like naming the ingredients to the to the sandwich and left it as my voicemail. <laughs> uh, so when people would call me, they'd have to hear that terrible song, and then you know, started taking it a little more seriously, the more chords and scales I learned. Mm -hmm. I don't, I'm still trying to write a good song, but like the first one that actually, you know, had like a verse and a bridge and a chorus was, I probably wrote when I was 16, maybe a year later. Okay. So not too long after you started getting more serious about guitar. Yeah. Cool. So, so from there, where do things take you? Because I know, all right, so you're 16, you've got the guitar, you're starting to write, 
You've moved on from the sandwich <laughs> material. <laughs> By 21, you're, you're moving to Birmingham to do this as a professional. So what happens in those years in between where you decide, yes, this is what I'm going to pursue? Um, I mean, a lot of it was just being hard-headed and not really having any other interests. Um, <laughs> and, and kind of deciding early that I didn't want to go to college because um, it was just like um, yeah, I kind of grew up um, at least in that time kind of broke and uh, you know like lived with my mom and stepdad in a, a one room apartment in Luverne for a pretty good while and kind of learned that money was not like if anything looking back on on like relatives and stuff money just made everything bad um so i think once i like figured out i could like just get a retail job and play gigs and support myself and not have any debt you know like i was like this is you know if i just keep doing this what's the worst that could happen i just support myself like hopefully you know um something happens with that and when I was in Luverne, uh, there weren't very many gigs to play in like Troy and the surrounding area. It's, it's not really um, a very culturally diverse town by any means. Yeah. Not a lot of venues or. Um, but uh, yeah, my sister had moved to Birmingham and she, uh, she just kind of said, you can come up here and live with me and like. She she got me, a, I guess, arts and uh, at least more so than anything in Troy or Woodburn. So, so just, um, just kinda... I'm just trying to place things. So geographically, how how far away is Birmingham from, say, Troy or Laverne, where you where you were previously? Two and a half, three hours. OK, so it's a it's a fair amount of distance away. Yeah, but but like not so far that uh still feels like Alabama so that's or did you but, uh, did you ever have a desire to to leave Alabama because I know most people in, in at least in that part of the country the traditional route is okay I'm gonna go be a professional I go to Nashville right yeah um I don't know I I uh I mean I definitely got offers or like was told I should move to Nashville and get a day job and stop playing five gigs. Well, this this sounds strange now in this time to be like, yeah, I was playing six days a week um, and didn't have to get a day job. So I was just playing music and they were like, you need to stop oversaturating. And um, and then I just like the, the record deal happened with easy eyes. So, I was like, why would you go to Nashville now? Like, <laughs> the whole point of moving to Nashville um, and kind of dealing with the weird, I guess, necessary evils of that town yeah. is, is to get a record deal. Nashville's a, an now, interesting place to, to try to break. That's It's a great place, and it's, it's all right. But uh, I, I like visiting Nashville. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can understand that. So, so at some point... You do get the you do get the break even where you are, um, and you get the record deal and everything. Now that 
comes by way of Dan from the Black Keys. So maybe can you tell us a little bit about how that actually happened? Yeah, um, and I was equally obsessed with them, like, uh, and and all that kind of you know the White Stripes, any kind of resurgence that brought me back to blues yeah. and roots music. Um, you know, following those. But long story short, uh, my, my old roommate had had moved to Nashville to pursue music, and um, he ran into um, his uh, also our roommate's friend from high school, Katie Pruitt, and he um, they were playing sharing shows together. I think at the basement and. Um, and her manager at the time, uh, Clay Bradley, like um, Ryan Saab, my old roommate, just showed Clay a YouTube video of me. And um, he had to meet Dan because he was um, representing Kendall Marvel, who also put out a record through Easy Eyes. So he was already in the building and had a meeting with Dan. And while he was there, he just showed him the YouTube video. And Dan, I think, like, I didn't even know Clay at the time. I'd never met him in person. Yeah. And uh, I think, no, I think I'd met him one time. And uh, and he was like, hey, can you meet me at uh, Dan Auerbach's studio? And I was like, cool. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Sounded like a trap or something. <laughs> but, uh I thought they were going to harvest my organs. but um, Well, thankfully, they didn't but, cut you up in a bathtub and steal your kidneys or something. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, that's that's kind of how it happened. It was just, I mean, so, so did Dan end up producing that record or just putting it out through the label? Yeah, he produced it. Okay, cool. I'd love to learn what, what that was like, what the studio sessions were like. I mean, it was, uh, it was super organic and like not a lot of talk of direction or thing um uh and he gets you know his his recording crew that he brings in the session players are just insanely um experienced people that um you know i had to pinch myself like (laughs) i've got all the there's some there's too many names but i mean it ranges from like Ross Paul to Paul Franklin and Mike Rojas, like all these guys who, you know, played with Elvis, like, yeah. uh, this is serious like, guys. It was like, uh, Joe, uh, I'm, I'm blanking on his name, but, uh, he, he had toured with Elvis and, uh, someone toured with Johnny Cash and I mean, Roy Orbison. So the, um, these are the guys you want yeah. in the studio. <laughs> yeah. And it was, it was great. Um, and I, I can, I can email you uh, or text you the uh, the list of all those players. I definitely want all those names to be um, people to be aware of Absolutely. all those talents. But um, yeah, I mean, we just like I sent in demos that were just my upright, my bass player, and me on acoustic guitar. There was about thirty five demos, and uh, they charted them and kind of picked the the ones that rose to the top and uh i think five of them i had co-written with uh with dan Mm -hmm. 
and and other writers that he brings into the studio and uh the other five that were on the, that made it to the record i i wrote myself um cool so as far as dan's production uh or, or i guess role as a producer in making your record is he because it sounds like he's more involved in the kind of gathering the, the personnel and, and working on arrangements and stuff. Is he also kind of behind the board working faders or do you have like someone else doing that? I'm just trying to picture, picture how the sessions are going. Cause I'm, that stuff to me is fascinating how it all works. Yeah. Um, I mean, Dan played a little bit of guitar okay. and, uh, but yeah, he was, he was, you know, behind the board a lot with Alan, uh, Damn, I'm so bad at last names, <laughs> but uh, Alan and Fergie um, were kind of working the magic behind the board and kind of coaching. And and once we got the live take, because um, he was very much so pushing like no clicks, like all recorded um, live, and then some overdubs. Yeah. But, um, I think there's just a better feeling when you do it that yeah. way, you know. Especially uh, with your type of music, you can't you can't snap it to a grid. It doesn't work. I was that was like one of the biggest things I was worried about because every everything I had ever recorded before before with Dan was all live, and every time I tried to record with a click, it was a nightmare. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I I hear you. But, yeah, um, he would just, you know, like, um, I don't know, it's kind of like being a coach, I guess. He would just, cool. you know, try to get the take from somebody. I would maybe redo my vocal take three times. But mostly, you know, like, the magic is in the, the team he put together. So yeah. there's not as much, like talking as i thought there would be it's kind of all just people getting to work and having an unspoken uh like just that uh, it's mad it's magic yeah there's there's that connection i think sometimes when producers are really good at what they do they don't have to talk a lot they can get the right people in the room (laughs) who know what they're doing and let the thing happen and i think a lot of producers mistakes are they get too involved in the nitty gritty and, and too micromanaging of every little thing where it's, it's not music anymore. It's a, you know, yeah. conveyor belt production line, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, I agree. So, I, I mean, that leads us to kind of the big question that that record eventually does come out. Um, <laughs> when March of last year, it came out on Friday the 13th. Probably, uh, probably an ominous sign of things to come because obviously March 2020 was not the best month in uh, in U.S. history. So you release a record smack dab at the beginning of a global pandemic. I'm assuming you had touring plans and everything lined up behind that, right? Yeah, we were we were kind of in the middle of a tour. Um, we were uh, as far away from Birmingham as we could be while still remaining in the u.s uh we were in just up like i guess like northwest uh portland like um oh wow so you really were and, uh, as far away as you could be yeah and uh 
we were about to go play, um, let's see, the record would have come out and we would have been in L.A. at, um, oh man, trying to remember, it, it's, uh, what's, uh, <laughs> what's the venue that, uh, the Almond Brothers are known. Uh, oh, uh, Fillmore? Um, Not the Fillmore. The, the, yeah, Fillmore. Fillmore, uh, okay. the Fillmore in, uh, in, in L.A. So uh, we were going to play there, which with the Long Bellow, and that would have been great. But uh, they sent us home because everything got canceled. And, but that, everybody was in the same boat, so tried not to get too disheartened but it was it was a long three-day drive <laughs> yeah back to Birmingham I just I, I I part of me feels bad you know you you, you get to this like uh, peak where the record comes out you're you're got all this momentum you're on the road and then boom everything's kind of just pulled out from under you almost <laughs> it's, it's kind of funny because like the few dates we have done like uh we, we did some shows with St. Paul recently in mm-hmm. Texas that were outside and like Jesse Phillips, the mm-hmm. bass player, when he was just like, man, whenever, uh, whenever I feel bad about like what this year was supposed to be for us, I always just like to think of you, uh, <laughs> to make myself feel better. <laughs> I don't know how you're supposed to take that, but yeah, everyone, everyone's kind of in the same boat. It's just. I, I don't know what you're going to do. Um, hopefully, live shows come back at some point. I mean, it looks like there's maybe hope on the horizon that things get better. Um, do, you, do you have any plans in place? Like, are you working on more recordings? Or, or what are you up to now in the meantime? Um, I have a show today uh, in Columbus, Mississippi at the Columbus oh, cool. Arts Council. Okay, cool. Um, um, we have, like, a Juan Bella tour towards the end of the year that may happen. Oh, that's um, good. Okay, you you were on tour yeah. with them, right? When it, when all this right, shut down. Okay. Yeah. And um, as far as recording, I I think we're I talked to Dan a couple of days ago, and I think we're gonna um, get in the studio this year. Um, cool. They just they just uh, joined forces with Concord, so um, I'm sure I'm sure that there will be a lot of hopeful advancements in uh yeah into into uh a more uh normal uh year hopefully yeah well we can only hope for the best i suppose (laughs) yeah so um so that kind of brings us to the end of our time here um before we go where can people find you online um what's the best place instagram youtube yeah i would say forms of social media but i would say we're most active on instagram it's just early james and the latest okay that's easy to on remember instagram and it's on facebook too All right, so I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Early James. Um, Like I mentioned at the top of the show, head on over to the YouTube channel uh, for Performer Magazine. Check out some of the videos that he did for us, uh, some intimate live performances uh, with Elixir Strings. And uh, head to our website uh, where you can actually check out some more pictures uh, and the full transcription of the interview if reading is more your speed. But why would you be listening to this if it was? Anyway, uh, head to performermag.com for more on everything that we do. Head to uh, our Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all of the things. If you've got 
uh, social media in any abstract form, I'm sure we're there in, in some way, shape, or form. So anyway, that'll do it for us. Uh, stay tuned for episode 11. And if you have any questions, just uh, hit me up, ben at performermag.com or at performermag on uh, Twitter or DMS on Instagram. However you choose to communicate is uh, A-OK in our books. So see you next time. Stay well.